Welcome back, everyone, to the Climate Discussion Nexus readout videos from our Wednesday wake-up email newsletter. And unfortunately, welcome back also to a pandemic lockdown, which prevents us from filming the segments properly. But I'm still John Robson, and 2021 is off to a great start with a giant surge of blazing hot liquid rock melting the Greenland ice cap from beneath. No, I'm afraid it's true. A team of researchers from Tohoku University recently announced in the Journal of Geophysical Research that two giant plumes of lava welling up from the core mantle boundary nearly 3,000 kilometers beneath the surface branch out to form three hotspots near eastern Greenland. Which really isn't surprising. Not because 2020 put a hex on our planet, but because our planet always has been, and still is, a very large and complex object with complicated internal processes and climate patterns. Very much unlike the alarmist, simplistic depiction of a small homogenous ball about to burst into flames. Now here, I don't deny that if lava were to melt the Greenland ice cap, it would be a bad thing, for humans at least, fish might feel differently, because it would create a sudden sea level rise of perhaps 6 meters. If. But to the extent that lava is causing any of the melting that is actually occurring, you can't blame the same melting on CO2. You, know, you can divide up the shares, but the total can't be more than 100%. And that's a point that applies a lot more broadly to global climate change. Anything that's attributed to natural processes can't also be man-made. Any share of the warming we may have been experiencing that you attribute to the sun, you can't also attribute to greenhouse gases and so on. And speaking of the Earth being complicated, in the newsletter we also note Willis Eschenbach's piece about how the overall pattern of temperature change is complex, and it's complex on a large and on a small scale. Some parts of the Earth warmed last year, others cooled. Some warmed a bit, others warmed more. The point here is, the whole Earth can't be greater than the sum of its parts. If the parts are subject to complex, varied, and sometimes contradictory processes, so must the whole Earth be. And here's one particular example of why it matters. If much of South America is cooling faster than almost anywhere else on the planet, which it was in 2020, what's left of blaming an increase of Amazon forest fires that didn't even happen on global warming. And, speaking of things that didn't even happen, the very active 2020 Atlantic hurricane season was, predictably, waved in our faces as more proof that global warming is upon us. But it turns out that around the world, 2020 was actually a quiet year for hurricanes. Both the total number and the intensity were lower than they have been on average recently, though it's part of a complicated trend, as indeed is the pattern of wildfires. Now it might seem that most people are cowed by the shifting expert say line on climate, enforced with considerable vigor one might say. But writing in the National Post late last year, columnist Randall Denley poked fun at the federal liberal carbon tax, including because quote, the top five best-selling vehicles in Canada are all pickup trucks or SUVs, end quote. So apparently Canadians are not in fact convinced that global warming is a crisis requiring them to change their behavior or even to change other people's behavior. Which suggests that they're just keeping their mouths shut to avoid being bullied. Which is no way to conduct politics, it's no way to conduct science, and we'd like to warn the alarmists that it also means they're not winning the argument just because they're being nasty about it. Now speaking of ways not to do science, another good one is to make endless bad predictions. And it turns out that 2020 was a particularly bad year that way, as it was, of course, in other ways. 
because people like round numbers. So a surprising number of alarmist predictions about climate disaster were supposed to happen, quote, by 2020, unquote, rather than by 2019 or by May 2021. And having looked at all these over at Junk Science, they praise a video by Climate Resistance that says, yeah, the alarmist crystal ball was once again cloudy. Now we understand it's hard to make predictions, especially about the future, but because it's hard, people should be willing to admit their errors and even learn a bit of humility from, for instance, the catalog of failed alarmist forecasts we included in our own video on the subject based on research by extinctionclock.org. As for us, we gaze into our crystal ball and predict that in 2020, we will hear a lot of nonsense about things that are going to happen, quote, by 2030, end quote, if we do not ex adopt extreme measures to combat global warming, but that we'll hear almost no predictions about 2029 or 2032. And we also won't hear any accounting for why all the predictions about what would happen by 2020 were so wrong. Now, we're giving 2020 a bit of a hard time here, but apparently not everybody really hated it. There was a misty-eyed piece by The Guardian's global environment editor, Jonathan Watts, about how great the lockdown was. Because despite doing far too little to save the planet, it was a great start in saving the planet. He wrote, quote, During the Northern Hemisphere's spring, when restrictions were at their strictest, the human footprint softened to a level not seen in decades. The respite was too short to reverse decades of destruction, but it did provide a glimpse of what the world might feel like without fossil fuels and with more space for nature. Alongside apocalyptic images of deserted roads, the internet briefly buzzed with a heartwarming clips of sheep in a deserted playground in Monmouthshire, Wales, end quote. Because to a green extremist, nothing is more heartwarming than a deserted playground, except perhaps a deserted city. So apparently we need to destroy civilization in order to save it. But isn't that what scientists say? You know, at CDN, we're mighty sick of this journalistic trick of adding the phrase scientists say or experts say to a mishmash of alarmist predictions to give them spurious credibility. So we decided to turn the trick on its head by reporting what scientists actually said based on research and data, starting with the hockey stick industry. And here we're talking not just about the original Michael Mann graph, but about this whole business of reconstructing past global temperatures from indirect proxies like tree rings and ice cores. It looks authoritative and it generates pretty pictures, but the problem is it relies upon sophisticated statistical techniques, but it's usually done by climate scientists who aren't actually experts in statistics and it matters. When two professors of statistics decided to check the results, and I quote here, we find that the proxies do not predict temperature significantly better than random series generated independently of temperature. Furthermore, various model specifications that perform similarly at predicting temperature produce extremely different historical backcasts. Finally, the proxies seem unable to forecast the high levels of and sharp run-up in temperature in the 1990s, either in sample or from contiguous holdout blocks, thus casting doubt on their ability to predict such phenomena if in fact they occurred several hundred years ago." End quote. If you're wondering what that last bit was about, or possibly thinking to yourself that not a lot of people combine successful careers in statistics and in poetry, the two statisticians, Blakely McShane of Northwestern University and Abraham Weiner of the University of Pennsylvania, writing in the Annals of Applied Statistics, discovered that 
if you look at recent periods where we have thermometer data, as well as say tree ring data, tree rings being very popular proxies, the tree rings miss recent rapid changes. What that means is, if you're using tree rings for periods where we don't have temperature data, the fact that the tree ring data doesn't show rapid changes doesn't give us any reason to believe they're not there because we know that the tree ring method doesn't find them when they are there. And it gets worse. Climatologists know how to draw pretty charts. But those statisticians who are also art critics, after admiring the prettiness of them, would ask, as McShane and Weiner did, whether the apparent fit between recent temperature data that we do know and proxies from that period is any better than you'd get if you tried fitting random numbers to known temperature data, the infamous monkeys throwing darts. Because if you don't, then using the proxies for past temperature data that we don't have means nothing. And you know what's coming, don't you? When McShane and Weiner ran standard tests for statistical significance on the recent proxy temperature matches, they found that, quote, random series that are independent of global temperature are as effective or more effective than the proxies at predicting global annual temperatures in the instrumental period, end quote. Instrumental period being their way of saying for the time when we've got thermometer data. So there's strike one. It gets even worse. If you ignore strike one and do past reconstructions anyway, there are actually a lot of ways to combine the proxy data with whatever thermometer data you do have for the most recent period. And unfortunately, many of them fit the known data equally well, but generating dramatically different pasts. Which means you can choose one that makes it look as if the past was cooler, if that's what you were determined to find anyway. But if you do that, it only tells us about you, not about the past. So there's strike two. Now, suppose you got the picture you wanted of a hockey stick with a flat proxy data handle and then a steep thermometer data blade. How do you prove that the proxy data didn't miss previous blades? Which, if they did exist, would mean that ours was not unusual and that it was therefore unlikely that this one, unlike all the others, was man-made. And that's where it matters that if you take only the proxy data for the recent period and discard the thermometer data that we do have, the blade falls off the stick. So to mix our metaphors in our sports, that's strike three. And if you don't like it, don't turn around and complain to us, because it's not us behind the plate. It's what scientists say. As always in the newsletter, we also have material from CO2Science.org, including an article that looks at Tuvalu, which, as you know, is a supposed poster child for island nations being washed away due to climate change. And the article finds instead that, despite there being sea level rise, Tuvalu's component bits, quote, nine atolls and 101 individual reef islands, end quote, have mostly been growing since 1971. Mostly here means that 73 of the islands got bigger while 28 shrank, and eight of the nine atolls got bigger. I presume most of us would rather look at fish in tropical seas than weeds on a Turkish farm, but science marches on in all sorts of directions, and another study from CO2Science.org tests the alarmist trope that climate change causes weeds to flourish while crops perish. Nope. It could be better management by farmers, it could be the beneficial effect of more CO2 on crops, it could be both, but whatever the cause is, it turns out that there are fewer weeds plaguing Turkish farms, not more. As always, if you value our work, please share it with friends and colleagues and encourage them to sign up for the newsletter and the videos. Please like us 
and subscribe to us on social media, and please contribute to what we do. For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, and 2021 looks like another exciting year. That's right.